Good morning. The motion picture entitled The Greatest Story Ever Told was released by United Artists in February of 1965. The movie was a four hour and 20 minute epic. Cast with some of the most famous names in Hollywood and the movie was nominated for five Oscars. It was well received. A review of the movie at the time included this statement. This is what the reviewer said. He said, the producer has created a novel, reverent and important film with his view of this crucial event in the history of mankind. A movie about the life of Christ. A crucial event in the history of mankind. Well, that statement was true. The movie dealt with the most crucial event in the history of mankind, the life, death, and resurrection of the man Jesus of Nazareth. Well, this morning, we're not looking to Hollywood for answers. We're looking to the inspired Word of God, and we're depending upon the Spirit of God to teach us and apply the Word of God to us. Luke and the three other gospel accounts reveal the storyline to us so far. It's clear from the Scriptures that in accordance with God's sovereignty and in accordance with God's divine purpose, Jesus of Nazareth and His unimpressive band of 11 ordinary men are on a collision course with the wicked and powerful religious leaders of the day and the enormous invincible Roman government. It's obvious that Jesus is about to come under the attack of Satan and all the demonic forces that he can bring to bear. You see, only hours before, Jesus had declared that his hour to be glorified had finally come. His hour to be glorified had finally come. So many times he has told his disciples, my hour is not yet. But now he says, my hour to be glorified has finally come. And on the very same night, Jesus will tell Judas and the soldiers that had come out to arrest him, this is your hour, the hour of darkness. The hour of Christ and the hour of darkness. The time has come. Good and evil are about to collide head on. And it will lead to the cross. The pivotal and decisive event for mankind. The pivotal and decisive event for mankind. Every man and every woman that will ever live, every man and every woman that will ever live is represented in at least one of the three paragraphs of Scripture that we are looking at today. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We have a big section of text this morning. It's Luke chapter 22, verses 39, all the way through 62. I want to take it in three parts. The first will be the humanity of the Lord Jesus. The second will be the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. And the third point will be the denial of Peter. Point number one comes from verses 39 and 46. Look with me there as I read. And he, Jesus... Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of God. May he bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. 
Father, we thank you that you have preserved your holy word for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who as fully God and fully man did indeed achieve salvation for his people by his sinless life and his perfect death on the cross under your wrath as he bore our sins. God, bless the preaching of your word this morning to the glory of Christ and the good of his people. Amen. The humanity of the Lord Jesus is seen here in the Garden of Gethsemane by his humility in prayer, by his perfect submission to his Father's will, by his absolute dependence upon the Father, by Jesus being strengthened by an angel. You hear that? He was strengthened by an angel and his victory over the agonizing temptation that he endured as he was tempted to bypass or escape the cross. Look at verse 39. Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Jesus, knowing full well the agony, the anguish, the humiliation, the mocking, the spitting, the scourging, and the crucifixion that awaited him, Jesus came out and he went anyway to the normal place that he would go, knowing that he would be betrayed that night. The courage of Christ, he went anyway. He came out and He went there, not in the splendor and the glory that are rightfully His as the second member of the Godhead. He went there as a humble man, a man completely dependent upon God. Now Jesus went to the garden to pray in the human nature of His flesh and in total dependence upon God, Jesus went to the garden to pray. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden, fell prey to Satan, and the first Adam plunged the entire human race into sin and rebellion against God and brought wrath and condemnation on us all. But here, Jesus, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, a garden of agony and a garden of anguish. He went there not as the glory of God, but He went there as the last Adam, is what the Apostle Paul called Him. He is the last Adam that brings and gives spiritual life. He went as the last Adam. He went as the man from heaven, the man from heaven, who had come to live in full obedience and submission and dependence upon God the Father in order to save His people from their sins. Jesus had previously been tempted. He had previously been tempted by Satan, and he had overcome that temptation of desire by Satan in the wilderness. We read in Luke chapter 4 that Satan departed from Jesus until an opportune time. He left Jesus after the temptation in the wilderness until an opportune time. Well, I don't know how many opportune times Satan had, but now is his opportune time, certainly and for sure. Now is Satan's opportune time. On this night of darkness, the power of darkness, Jesus would now be faced with the temptation of avoiding the cup of God's wrath and the anguish of the cross. In verse 40 we read that when he had come to the place, he said to them, to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus, knowing that He was going to be entered into temptation, He said to them, pray that you are not entered into temptation. The events that are unfolding here have been prophesied or in in accordance with the divine purpose of God. Christ is in control. As much as a tailspin as this looks like, Jesus Christ is in absolute control. God the Father is in absolute control. Jesus told the eleven, He said, You will all fall away because of Me this night. 
not that earlier, not that much earlier, Jesus told them, this is a prophecy, he said, you will all fall away because of me this night. Here it is, for it is written. Jesus quotes from Matthew chapter 26 in our Bibles. He said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. As he quotes that from the Old Testament, we read his quote in Matthew chapter 26. You see, Jesus knows the severity of the temptation that his disciples are about to experience. So he commands them to pray. He knows that the transition that they're about to witness is going to be extremely upsetting and confusing and exhausting to them. So he commands them to pray. I would recommend to myself and to you that when I come to that place in my life, when it seems that there is no way to escape, there is no way forward, there is no way back, I can't turn to the left, I can't turn to the right, the only way is straight through, pray! That's what Jesus did. That's what He commanded His disciples to do. Get on our knees and pray. Jesus got on His face and He prayed to God. The Bible says that He withdrew from them from about a stone's throw. 50, 60 feet, he knelt down and he prayed. And he said, Father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup. Remove this cup, he prayed. The cup that Jesus is praying about is not just the physical agony of the scourging and the crucifixion. Oh no, no. It is the cup of God's wrath against sin. God's wrath is spoken of as a cup numerous times in the Old Testament. Maybe the best one or the best well-known one is from Psalm chapter 75. Excuse me, Psalm 75 verse 8. It says, Therefore, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You understand what that means. What Jesus is facing here is to come under the wrath of God. That Jesus is the one who is going to take that cup that is foaming and well mixed. And as God pours out from it, the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The Lord Jesus Christ knew that He would be made sin for His people and He would drink that cup. That He would experience the totality of the wrath of God against His people in order that Paul might write in Romans chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation against them that are in Christ Jesus. And He entered into that garden and He prayed to God that... If it was possible, if it was possible, that it might be removed. You see, it is Christ being made sin for us and being forsaken by the Father, experiencing God's wrath on our behalf and being crushed for our sins and experiencing death is exactly what Christ was facing. And He was bearing that load as he went to the garden, the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Was Jesus praying in opposition to the will of the Father here? No, no, not at all. Make no mistake, there was no rebellion or opposition in the heart of Christ to the will of the Father. Far from it. For Jesus Christ himself had entered into the eternal covenant with the Father before time began. It would require the shedding of his blood for the salvation of his people. What he was doing here was submitting himself to his father in prayer and fighting the temptation of avoiding the cross. He prayed that if there was any way to deal with the sins of his people other than experiencing the agony and the anguish 
of being made sin and crushed under the wrath of God, let it be so. You see, Jesus had a real human will, and He was truly subject to temptation. Jesus had real human emotions, and He experienced real human trials and temptations. The Lord Jesus experienced real human fatigue and exhaustion and pain and tears. Why? Because He is one of us. Jesus of Nazareth is one of us. He is as much human as we are, my brothers and sisters. Beloved, He is eternal God, made flesh. Made flesh in all points just as we are, sin only being accepted. He knows those emotions. He knows that fatigue. He knows the pain. He knows the tears. And the horrors of the cross and the wrath of God that filled His mind on that night in that garden were absolutely literal and they were absolutely true. And He bore the weight of them. The temptation to avoid the cross for the Lord Jesus that night was completely real and it was powerful. He did not meet that conflict raging in Him as the eternal God. He met that as Jesus of Nazareth, in total dependence upon the Father. The conflict that raged inside of him that night was entirely authentic and it was fierce. The Lord Jesus agonized in spiritual struggle against the temptation of avoiding the spiritual suffering and the physical suffering that he knew was waiting for him. His agony was intense and his anguish was extreme. And he submitted himself to the Father and said, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then the Lord Jesus received the answer from the Father. An angel from heaven was sent to strengthen him. The answer was this. The people of Christ could not be saved apart from his sacrificial, substitutionary death under the wrath of God on the cross. And the Lord Jesus Christ submitted himself to that. The Father sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. What an undeniable display of the true humanity and the manhood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the creator of the angels, Now, in the humility and weakness of flesh, having been made a little lower than the angels, being strengthened by one of the spiritual beings that He spoke into existence by the word of His power, totally dependent upon God the Father, meeting this this anguish and this agony and this temptation in the weakness and the humility of flesh in total dependence upon God. Jesus, strengthened by the angel, then entered into even more intense prayer to the Father, and He agonized. It was a a spiritual agony. It was a spiritual struggle. He agonized so much that Dr. Luke tells us that His sweat became as great drops of blood falling down to the ground. His sweat as blood to the ground. 
Do you hear an echo of Genesis chapter 3? Do you hear an echo of Genesis chapter 3 where Adam's sin brought the curse of God on the earth? The cursed ground, living by the sweat of one's brow, and the necessity of innocent blood being shed to cover the sins of the guilty. The curse came in Genesis chapter 3, and now we see it will not be long until the Lord Jesus Christ begins the reversal of the curse. As His sweat, as it were great drops of blood, falling to the ground. He wrestled, and He did combat with Satan and with temptation, and He got the victory. Then having gotten the victory over Satan and temptation, and having committed Himself to the cross, Jesus arose from prayer, awakened His sleeping disciples, and He went out to meet His betrayer and the band of soldiers that had been sent to seize Him. Verses 47 through 53 tell us about the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. Beginning in verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Beloved, make no mistake, the betrayal of Judas, the betrayal of Judas was in fulfillment of God's word and in accordance with the divine purpose of God. In John chapter 13, the Lord Jesus had said, I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He quoted from Psalm 41. He said, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Speaking, of course, of Judas Iscariot. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said this to the Father. He said, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, them which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Things are not spinning out of control. God is in charge. The providence of God is coming to pass under His sovereign control. It's a reasonable question to ask, how in the world could Judas have betrayed Christ after walking so closely with Him during His entire public ministry for over three years? The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1 that Judas was numbered among the disciples and had a share in the ministry. Well, the answer is this. Judas never experienced the grace of God and true repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it should chill us 
to know that Judas was numbered among the disciples and had a share in the ministry. Oh, on that day when we stand before the Lord Jesus, there will be many that were numbered among disciples and had a share in the ministry to whom Christ will say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. The other eleven, they walked, they talked, they ate. They made their way through life for over three years with Judas, and he raised no suspicion. There was no time that Christ did not know. But Judas comported himself in such a manner that he raised no suspicion among the other eleven. So how is it that he could have betrayed Christ after walking with him that closely for that long? Judas never experienced the grace of God in salvation. Another excellent question is this. What was it that motivated Judas? Some say that it was political motivation. Others say that it was personal greed. There are reasons to think it could be either or maybe a combination of those. There may have been other things that came into there and into play. We just simply don't know. The Bible does not say. But here's the important point. Here is the takeaway point. Judas did exactly what it was that Judas wanted to do. Jesus betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ for Judas' sake. Judas was self-centered. He was not Christ-centered. Judas did exactly what it was that Judas wanted to do. Satan entered him as a willing tool, as a willing vessel, and Satan used him as his tool and as his vessel. And all of this was done in absolute accordance with the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, according to the Apostle Peter in the very first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. And look, Judas came to the Lord Jesus Christ and betrayed Him, not with a pointed finger, he betrayed Him with a kiss. Oh, the hypocrisy and the blind attempt of Judas to cover up his sin. There is no excuse, Judas. What Judas did was evil and it was disgusting. It was vile and it was wretched. It was sickening and it was heartbreaking. Judas conceived the plot. Judas planned the plot down to the last detail. Judas acted as the guide for the soldiers who came to take Jesus. Judas showed them where his Christ was. He gave them the sign by which he would betray Jesus. Judas directed, Judas conducted, Judas administered the entire affair because that's what he wanted to do. He's guilty. He's guilty of the blood of Christ. Did you know that one of the most common names among the Jews in that day was the name Judas? I understand there are eight or ten fellows named Judas that show up in the Scriptures, but there's only one Judas Iscariot. Forever in infamy he will live. Even among the infidels and the unbelievers and the Christ-haters, they don't name their sons Judas. He betrayed the Lord. He gave him up to be scourged and mocked, to have his beard plucked, to be spit on, to be crucified, to be railed against, to be humiliated. All in accordance with the divine and perfect plan of Almighty God to save His people from their sins. Judas never repented. We know that he showed remorse of his betrayal before his death, but he never experienced genuine repentance. Oh, he took the money back. He tried to give it back. And they said, we don't want it. What's, what's your remorse to us? Not anything. He 
He went and killed himself. He never experienced the grace of God in salvation. Well, in the midst of all this, the disciples, they did not understand, and they wanted a physical fight. They wanted to open the ball and start the war. Peter drew his sword and he struck, and Jesus said, no more of this. No more of this. You see, the disciples did not understand that the kingdom of God is not advanced by killing. The kingdom of God is advanced by dying. Dying to ourselves and dying physically if necessary. Then Jesus demonstrated His Godhead and He showed grace and He loved His enemy by healing the severed ear of the high priest's servant. And then Jesus said, He said, if you come out as against a robber, that word means a violent man. He said, did you come prepared to take a violent man? He said, I've been with you day after day in the temple and you didn't lay hands on me. But now, now he said, this is your hour and the hour of the power of darkness. The betrayer, Judas Iscariot. Our third point is the denial of Simon Peter. Verses 54 through 62. They seized Jesus and led him away. Notice they didn't drive him and they didn't drag him. He went willingly. They seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. When they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus was a fulfillment of the Word of God and in accordance with the divine purpose of God. You remember Trey preached to us last week, I believe. The Lord Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then he went on to say, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death with you. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter denied the Lord Jesus, but Peter's faith did not fail. Listen to me. Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times, but Peter's faith did not fail. We know he had faith. He had experienced the grace of God in salvation. Do you remember back in Matthew chapter 16? When Jesus asked his disciples, he said, Who do people say that I am? They said, well, some John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter's the one that answered. He said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember what Jesus said to him? He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We know that Peter's faith did not fail. Christ interceded in prayer and advocated with the Father that Peter's faith should not fail. So clearly his faith did not fail. It was tried in the crucible. He sinned against Christ, but his faith did not fail. But even so, in the space of only a few hours, 
Peter went from being willing to die with the Lord Jesus. He really was. He drew the sword and he struck. But in a few hours, he went from being willing to die with the Lord Jesus to cowering before a slave girl and denying Christ three times. How do you explain that? How do you explain Peter's shift from courage to cowardice in such a short time? Well, I don't think I have all the answers, but I've got a few things to think about. Think about the changes that Peter had experienced in just the last few hours. Totally and completely unanticipated. He'd spent the last three years in the very physical presence of Jesus. He had witnessed almost every miracle that the Lord had performed. He'd even been the subject of a couple of those miracles. He'd seen Jesus change water into wine. He'd seen Jesus still the raging storm. He'd seen Jesus on more than one occasion feed more than 4,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. He saw Jesus heal the sick. He saw Jesus cast out demons. He even saw Jesus raise the dead. And he believed by the grace of God that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now... In just the last few hours, exhausted and worn out, he was witness to the Lord being arrested and bound and interrogated and mocked and blasphemed. Peter's world had been turned upside down. He was exhausted and dazed and confused, but this was pretty clear to him by now that this was likely going to end in the death of Jesus. What a transition! What a transition Peter had experienced in only a few hours. Peter didn't ask for this transition. He didn't ask for this change. He didn't ask for it. He didn't like it. He didn't want it. He didn't understand it. He'd even taken out a sword and fought against it. But nonetheless, it was real. The transition that he could never have imagined was real... And he was living through it. He was an eyewitness to it. In this crucial moment of trial, like so many times in the life of Peter, he didn't respond from the faith that the Lord had given him, but he responded from his flesh. Down, 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 Peter went. And at his third denial, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he'd said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Even though Peter wept tears, bitter tears of genuine repentance, it was by God's grace. Don't miss this. It was when Peter remembered the word of the Lord. True faith and true repentance always comes by the word of the Lord. We read that the Lord Jesus had restored him publicly in John chapter 21. Peter failed, Peter failed, Peter failed. The Lord Jesus restored him publicly and he said, Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And then the Lord used him after the resurrection on the day of Pentecost to preach the very first Christian sermon and later to write two letters that are preserved for us in our New Testament. Praise God for his forgiveness and his restoration to his people. Well, what about us? I said that every man and woman that ever lived is represented in at least one of these three paragraphs that we've looked at this morning. 
Think about that. How is it that we respond in times of unwelcome change and confusion and discomfort? How is it that we respond in times of temptation? I'm afraid all too often I respond like Peter from my flesh. But we all know that we should respond always and ever in accordance with the Word of God and as directed by the Spirit of God. Yet, we fall over and over and over And as Peter failed the Lord colossally, so do I, and from time to time, so do you. We fail over and over and over, and sometimes we fail colossally, and Jesus restores us over and over and over. Now, out of these three men, Jesus, Judas, or Peter, which of these three men represent us best? I want you to think about this for yourself. I want you to... to, to apply these questions to yourself. I want to apply them to me. Notice, who was it that represented us best? Judas never experienced God's grace and salvation. He never experienced God's grace and salvation. Peter did. Judas showed remorse of his betrayal, but he never experienced genuine repentance. Now, Peter failed over and over and over, even colossally. But Peter was prayed for by the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus interceded and advocated on his behalf. And Christ restored him over and over and over. And Christ used Peter in a mighty way. There were three men in this passage today. Judas and Peter. I want you to think about the Lord Jesus in this light. Jesus of Nazareth won the victory in Gethsemane over the temptation to avoid the cross. And on that cross, He accomplished salvation for His people. Everything that He accomplished, everything that Jesus accomplished in His perfect life of obedience to the Father, in the temptation out in the desert, in the agony of Gethsemane, and with being forsaken and crushed under the wrath of God for our sins, He accomplished those things for our repentance and our redemption and our reconciliation to God, beloved. He did those things for His people, Jesus of Nazareth, the man Jesus, is our representative. He is the last Adam. He is our Adam. The Lord God placed us in union with Jesus before the foundation of this world. Everything the Lord Jesus accomplished in life and death and resurrection as our representative is ours. Let me say that again. Everything the Lord Jesus accomplished in life and death and resurrection as our representative is ours by God's free and sovereign grace. Praise God. Those things that Christ accomplished are reckoned to our account by Almighty God the Father. Praise be to our good God and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. My exhortation to you today is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and thankful that as the Lord Jesus struggled under the agony of the temptation to avoid the cross, in the weakness and the humility of human flesh, that Father, He never once exerted His will in opposition to yours, but in total and complete dependence upon you to meet His every need. Father, He gained the victory over that temptation. He gained the victory over Satan. He let Himself be taken. He let Himself be tried. He let Himself be scourged and mocked and humiliated. And Father, He let Himself be crucified on the cross. And He submitted Himself to being crushed by Jehovah God 
under the wrath that my sin and the sins of my brothers and sisters so richly deserved. Lord Jesus, it's not adequate for us to say thank you this morning, but Father, from our hearts, may your Spirit work in us and may he generate in us the deepest sense of gratitude that we can possibly experience at what you undertook and what you accomplished, the agony and the suffering and the anguish that you endured being forsaken by your Father in order that we might never know what punishment from God is or what it is to be God forsaken. Lord Jesus, we bow before your throne of mercy and grace this morning. We kiss your feet and we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your precious, holy name. Amen.